We introduced this book, gave you an overall picture of the entire book last Sunday morning as we uh, prepared to uh, do a series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And today we get to look at the first four verses. Introduce some truths for you. We'll read those in a moment, but we will dismiss young people. And Brother Umstead is going to be working with them for the next few weeks, I believe it is. So the Umsteads, as they head on out with the young people for a good time in the Word, as we have a good time in the Word. Have you ever heard the name Alfred Nobel? Nobel was a Swedish chemist. Get this, he was the inventor of dynamite. Yeah, real bang out of life, huh? Uh, seriously, I'm not kidding. He's uh, Alfred Nobel, Nobel was the inventor of dynamite. And what makes him so unique is an event that took place in his life. He, he awoke one morning, opened the newspaper, started to read the obituary column, and this was what was written. Alfred Nobel the inventor of dynamite, who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to be killed in a war than ever before, and he died a very rich man. That was the obituary. It was his obituary. The problem was, Alfred was still very much alive. It was actually Alfred's older brother who had died. The newspaper reporter bungled it, messed up and wrote those words. But that obituary had a very profound effect on Alfred. He decided after that he wanted to be known for something other than developing a means to kill people efficiently and amassing a fortune in the process. So he initiated something. You've probably heard of it before. The Nobel Prize. An award for scientists and writers who foster peace. Now, we're not going to get into a discussion about the Nobel Prize today and what goes on with that, but here's what he said, and this is what led to it. He said, every man ought to have the chance to correct his epitaph in midstream and write a new one. The one telling that story about Alfred Nobel then said this, few things will change us as much as looking at our life as though it is finished. Have you taken time to consider what people think of you? And I'm not, in the, not in the sense that you feel guilt and remorse over what's gone on, but have you taken time to consider what people think of you and then lived in light of it? When Paul spoke about the church at Thessalonica, as we shared last week, he could share a lot of good things about their lives. Not that they had come up with some wonderful invention or made millions of dollars, but when he could talk about these people and gave testimony to what these people were like, he shared a number of things that were, were if you would, praiseworthy. And today we're going to look at one, and that is one of the things or one of the places where he mentions some of their good and some of the deeds that they had done the testimony that they had, if you would, the way they would be known and the way that we know them today because of this testimony. Uh, he was able to share, if you would, uh, what you and I ought to be able to share about our lives. Look at verse 3. I'm, I'm just going to have you, I'm going to read it and then we'll, uh, then we'll have a word of prayer and we'll move on. But the Bible says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love 
and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. He was giving a testimony of these people. If you will, maybe we could have said, and I know it wasn't at the time because he was writing of the church that was still in existence, all right? But he, he could have said, this is, this is your life, Thessalonians. This is what you're doing. That's kind of good testimony, isn't it? If someone were writing your epithet, if, if, your, na- if your name was in the obituary page, uh, what would they be writing? That is one of four different things we're going to find challenging us in these first four verses of Thessal- 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So let's pray and ask God to give us some understanding today. Father, help us as we look at these uh, four important things. May we be encouraged. May we be exhorted appropriately, uh, depending on where we're at in our lives. And may we look at our lives today, and may we examine ourselves and see if our lives have the kind of testimony and life that is exemplified of the church at Thessalonica and even in the life of Paul. So help us, Father, today as we look at these introductory statements, but challenging thoughts. Uh, Stir us, meet with us. Father, I pray that in power you'd speak to our hearts today and help us to be what you would have us to be. May we have a shining testimony for the glory of God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible tells us Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. And as we've already read, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Now, Paul's assessment of the believers is one of, as I've said, four things that could provide both encouragement and exhortation from these first four verses. Now, we're not going to look at verse 1, 2, 3, 4, but four different things that I hope will either encourage you or exhort you today to either change or just to encourage your heart. And the first thing is very encouraging point, and it's this, know your position. Know your position. As Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus uh, were, if you would, beginning this church, or God used them to begin this church at Thessalonica, God worked in and through these people. They had grown and become what God wanted them to be. But as Paul was talking to them, he shared two truths in these first four verses that share with us um, their position in Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, the first word I wrote under their position was they were select. You know, the few, the proud. Believers at Thessalonica. You know, you expecting the Marines, weren't you? Because you've heard that statement before. But, you know, Paul could say that these people were select. By the way, you know, the Marines have that because they want people to think we're special. Right? Because, all right, someone must be a, must have been a Marine. All right, so we're special. Now, look, the whole idea of that, of that advertisement the flu, the flu, the flu, the flack, the million. Yes, I can't even say it right. All right, the flu. The, I did it again. The few. Wow, we're having a good start to things here. All right. 
I can't even, can't even, can't even get it out. All right. So, well, anyway, the whole reason for that advertisement, which I won't say again, the whole idea is to, to promote this, that they are a select few. You know that, that God describes the select few here. Not everyone could be part of what he described of these people. Two things he shares. Look in verse 1. He says this. He says, unto, right after he introduces the three, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. First point he makes, and the first thing that should encourage your heart this morning, because you can say the same thing, that if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have become part of the church. The church is not a building. You do understand that, don't you? When people accept Jesus Christ as Savior, they become part of, they should become part of a local New Testament church because in the Bible, when God talks about the church, in fact, a majority of the times when he talks about the church, he's talking about a body of believers that are gathered together, a local called out assembly, which is what the term church means. But there's also a sense in which when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you become part of the body of Christ. You're called the church. So if you're here this morning and you're saved, you ought to be encouraged today to know that you have a position in Christ as part of his church, part of his body. Now, that's a wonderful privilege. By the way, it's also a, a great challenge because every part of the body needs to be doing its part. If the, if the church as a whole, the local New Testament church is going to be what God wants it to be. Now, that isn't the message this morning because he doesn't go off and deal with those things later on. He'll talk about how they should conduct themselves. Uh, but it is an encouraging thing to be reminded of the fact that when I trust Christ, I am part of a select few. I have become part of the body of Jesus Christ. Notice also he gives another descriptive term to encourage them with their, if you would, selection. Actually, people would choose the word, use the word election. Because verse 4 brings out that fact. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. You know, there's a wonderful truth in Scripture that sadly has been, has been misused by some to become a discouragement to believers, and it shouldn't be. The fact is, people put their faith in Jesus Christ. God calls them his elect. That is a wonderful truth. He wrote this to be an encouragement to these believers to think, I'm part of the body of Christ. I'm part of God's family, and nothing can ever take that away. I was made part of the church when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, and nothing can take that from me. Not only that, but I can say that God, before the foundation of the world, knowing that I put my faith in Jesus Christ, made me part of his elect. By the way, in Scripture, those who are saved are the only ones that are called elect. Lost people aren't called elect. Those who are saved are called the elect, the chosen ones, if you would, those selected. Now, we're, we've already preached on the subject. We're not going to get off on that this morning, but it ought to encourage your heart to know that you're part of the elect if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And that is the position that he shares with us. Know your position. You are select. But not only are you select, the few, the proud, I got it right out there, I didn't say it again, all right? The few, the proud, the believers, the Christians, the elect believers in Jesus Christ. But not only that, but he shares with them that they are secure. Look, if you would, again, at verse 1, he says, it's to the church at Thessalon the Thessalonians, which is, look at this wording, in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is an awesome truth. The moment 
a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, they not only become part of the church, they're not, they can not only say, I'm part of the elect, if you would, uh, but also as well, and an encouraging thought is, I can say, look, I am secure because I am in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, do you know that there's another writer in the New Testament who took time to give us that very same picture of someone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ? Take a moment and look, if you would, in John chapter 10. Over in John chapter 10, John wrote of the reality that when you receive Christ as Savior, you are held securely by God. The picture he gives us here in verse 1, which is precious. We are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 10, verse 27, he writes, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Now, it's said in the different, in different order in John chapter 10, but the picture is the same. Here's the picture he wanted the church at Thessalonica to know. You're part of the church, and you are in the Father, you are in the Son, and no one can get you out. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Look, as a believer this morning, I have a position. I am in God the Father, I am in His Son, Jesus Christ, and no man can change that. What a wonderful truth. Not myself, not anyone else. I am secure. In Jesus. And as he begins to write, by the way, don't you think that would have been encouraging to a church that was started out of persecution, that was facing persecution that very moment, to say this, hey, look, whatever happens to me, I know right now I'm part of God's church. I'm part of his body, a local church. What a great blessing. Not only am I elect, but, but you know, I also have the wonderful promise. I am in the Father. I'm in the Son. I'm kept by him. And nothing can change that, no matter what comes my way. And it was, it was an encouragement to them. And this morning, it should be an encouragement to you. So he shares that they're secure. You know, today, we have a lot of people talking about security, don't we? But people that can't promise security. Oh, they do. LifeLock, right? Yeah, you, you, need, your, you need all your, your um, you need, yeah, you need all your computers and everything else secure because, because there are so many possibilities of people stealing your material. Oh, man, I'll tell you what, if you listen to all the advertisements, you will, you just, you get on the internet, you'll be petrified every moment that you're on. Someone's going to steal all my information. But you know, those companies can't guarantee anything. By the way, they tell you up to a million dollars, they will stand behind you. In other words, they're saying they can't keep you secure, so we'll pay you. Isn't that true? Because no one can guarantee security. I just read this week about, I was reminded about Masada. You, you know what I say when I use the word Masada? Masada is a place in the land of Israel um, that was a veritable fortress. Uh, it was the last, if you would, the last area of Israel after Jerusalem was taken that the German government had, didn't get, hadn't gotten. And they wanted Masada. And they said it was impenetrable. No one will ever get in here. Ha, ha, ha. They did. And all of the Jews at Masada committed suicide before the Roman uh, government came in and took control. 
of that one last fortress. There's a lot of things that pr pronounce themselves secure, but none of them can pronounce you secure as God does to the church at Thessalonica and every believer in, in verse 1. Because these, these uh, companies that provide security for, you, for your, your, um, your computers and everything else, for your house, for all these other things, can't provide it. But when God says that you're secure in Him, you're in the Father and in the Son, you are secure. Because no man can take you out of the Father's hand. And that is a wonderful truth that's brought out in this passage. But can I also share another thing about uh, God's about this wonderful truth and knowing your position. You're not only um, select, you're not only secure, but you're also supplied. Look in verse 1, where he comes in, and after he talks about being in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a common greeting. It's just what a lot of times was written, but it wasn't like our, hello, Greetings from, if you ever write, okay, you don't even know how to write letters anymore, do you? All right, but if you send an email, uh, I guess it is these days, because we don't, we do everything electronically, uh, you know, mail, what is mail except junk, right, that you get. Okay, we won't get off on that subject this morning, but he pictures in verse one, uh, just a wonderful truth about these believers, and it was a common greeting, but it wasn't just a common greeting, it was Paul's heart for these people. He wanted them to know two things. And by the way, he could be confident that they would know two things. He can be confident, first of all, that they already knew these two things, but then his prayer was that it would increase and they'd know it in a greater way. And those are two wonderful things for every Christian to know and experience. Grace, peace. Now the truth is, if you've been saved, you've already experienced God's grace and God's peace. Therefore, being justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God brought you into peace with him when you trust Christ as your Savior. not what he's talking about in this verse, but it should encourage your heart and to think about that as a believer this morning. God also not only provided you peace, but God also provided grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. Grace is the supernatural enabling of God to do for an undeserving person what no one else can do and what they can't do for themselves. And that's what God did when he saved you. When he put you into the family of God, he did something you couldn't do on your own. And no one could do it for you. You can't buy your way to heaven. You can't earn your way to heaven. You can't win your way to heaven. There's nothing you can do to get to heaven except trust in Jesus Christ. And when you trust in Jesus Christ, God bestows his grace on you to bring you salvation. That's not what he was talking about, though, when he greeted these people. He was talking about the grace God gives to live the Christian life after one is saved. He was talking about the peace that God gives to believers as they walk with him and as they walk a life pleasing to him. And he says, look, I want you to know, and I'm praying that you would know God's grace and God's peace, and they are available for you this morning, and that should encourage your heart. It's our position. We are, we are not only select, we are not only secure in Jesus Christ, but we're also supplied. I put another word, too, since we're going with the, with the uh, alliteration. Uh, satisfied. Because that's what God provides for his own. Satisfaction. He meets their needs. You need grace? My grace is sufficient for me. 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, and that was written in the context of someone who had a thorn in the flesh and was going to live with that thorn in the flesh and was going to continue to have it. And God said, I will give you my grace. You can count on it. And no wonder Paul wrote to this church who was suffering and said, I want you to know my grace, God's grace, sorry. I want you to experience grace, and I'm praying that you will. Um, and then, let me tell you, God promises his peace. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Isaiah 26 reminds us of that truth. In the New Testament, God said we're not to be anxious for anything in Philippians chapter 4. The peace of God that passes all understanding can keep our heart and mind. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. God gives peace to his children as they walk in obedience to him. So what Paul prayed for, for the church about this position as people who were satisfied or supplied, people who were secure, people who were select, those things are still true today of every believer in this room, and God still provides them today, and that ought just be a wonderful blessing to you. Um, but that's not the only thing to learn from this passage. Look, if you would, in verse 2. Because in verse 2, we learn about praise. So not only do we not learn about our position, but we learn about praise. He says, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Notice the declaration of, of praise. Paul praises the church right at the start of verse 2. Now, we've already said this. It happens a lot of times uh, throughout the book of Thessalonians because he needed to encourage these people. They were facing intense persecution. The church started because of and and as a result of intense persecution. So as we already have brought out, we spent quite a bit of time on that last week. Man, these people needed someone to encourage them. And one of the things he does is declare that, look, I want to praise you right at the start of this letter. We give thanks to God. Now, it's a little bit veiled here, though, because he doesn't say, you people are great. Although he's going to talk in verse 3 about some of the things he observed in their life that is praiseworthy and that is, is a, just was an encouragement to him. He didn't say, you're great. He said, we give thanks to God for you. His declaration of praise. He was thankful for them. He was thankful for their lives and their, for, te for their testimony. But where did he direct his praise? He directed it at them, didn't he, in a sense? We give thanks to God for you. But where did he do it? And where was the direction of it ultimately? It was to God. And this is just a little sideline, but I think it's something for, important for us to remember. Today, man, people overdo praise. Well, I know. Some people don't get praised enough, but some people get praised more. You, you see it all the time. They stop, in some schools, stop having grades because... They don't want anyone to feel bad. They want everyone, everyone to feel good about their accomplishments in school. So we don't have grades anymore. Uh, you know, some teams today give trophies to everyone, participation trophies. We don't have first place. We don't have second place. We don't have third place. We don't have last place. We have trophies for everyone. So everyone feels good about themselves, right? Now, when Paul praised these people, he he. He praised them, if you would, indirectly, focusing on the fact that God had used them in their lives and in his life and actually to be a blessing and a help to one another. And I 
there's a, a lesson to be learned because today it seems like in, in many ways uh, we end up praising people without realizing that if anyone should be praised for an accomplishment of another person and the blessing of another person, it should be God. Because although someone put forth the effort, and they should know that they're appreciated. By the way, the church knew that, wouldn't they, from verse 2? We thank God always for you. But the praise again was directed to God. The direction of praise is very clear. He praised the people by thanking God. And may we do the same. Uh, and, and then, um, you know, Paul praised these people because they had a vibrant Christian life. Isn't that a great thing to praise? Um, today... I'm serious about this. We praise people. We praise people because they have a good voice. Which, by the way, if they have a good voice, it's because God gave it to them. We praise people because they have some great ability or they do something right, per se, in some area. Maybe they have some skill. But the truth is, if they are able to do that, they do that because of God. When Paul praised them, though, he wasn't recognizing, Oh, you got a great pastor. Man, he's a great preacher. Oh, you people have a great, you have a great song leader, your charge. He says, look, I, what, what is praiseworthy about you is your walk with God. It's noticed, it's recognized, and I thank God every time I think about it. Praise, appropriate praise, is right to give, but it needs to be done right. It needs to be done in a way that pleases God, and that should challenge you. There's a challenge in praise as Paul praised the church at Thessalonica for what he had observed. Now, we also learn something about prayer, don't we? Look in verse 2 once again. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Okay, let me share with you a couple things about prayer that I find very challenging as I have read this passage and been thinking about what is being said in these first four verses. First, I want you to catch the perspective for, for prayer. The perspective for prayer. You say, perspective for prayer? What do you mean? Well, if I got up this morning and I said, hey, I want you to pray for me. I'm going for some tests this week. I'm having stress tests this week. And, uh, and I'm concerned because I, I just haven't been feeling real well. How many of you would pray for me? Okay, good. Three of you. Thank you very much. All right. <laughs> Okay, all right. I would hope and I would think that everyone in this church would pray for me at some time. You might not remember exactly when, but you'd pray for me this week as I was having stress. I'm not having it. Um, I have enough stress without a stress test, all right? No, no, I'm kidding, all right? Um, but I, So I'm fine. I'm doing fine, really. There's nothing at all. But the truth of the matter is you would pray for me because a lot of times our perspective in prayer is that we pray for people who have needs. Let me ask you something. Did the church at Thessalonica have needs? But what led him to pray? He didn't say, you people are suffering and so I prayed for you today. You people have an appointment on Wednesday at the doctor. I prayed for you today. He thought, 
These people are living for God. I'm going to pray for them today. I've been challenged by that this week in prayer. Because a lot of times, I think to pray for people because they mention the need. But I'm not as driven to pray for someone because I thought of them and I thought about how their Christian life is a good testimony. I just wanted to talk to God about it and thank the Lord for it. A perspective in prayer that I think perhaps is missing sometimes when we pray. Because rightfully so, we should pray for needs. And there was no doubt that Paul could have said about the church at Thessalonica, hey, you know, I heard about this, and I heard about how this happened to so-and-so, and I know how, how a couple deacons in your church have been suffering a lot, and so as I thought about their suffering, I prayed for them. No, he said, I thought about how you're living for God, and I prayed for you. Wouldn't it be good if we were just praying for one another because we thought about one another this week? Seriously. Not because Mrs. Deals had a test, but because I thought about Mrs. Deals. And because I thought about her, I just took her to the Lord and rejoiced in the fact that, that she's a Christian, she's walking with God, and she's seeking to please the Lord. There's nothing wrong with bringing up some of the things that have been going on in her life and some of the concerns, because God wants us to pray about those things. But sometimes our prayer life can only be centered on, there's something bad going on, let's pray for so-and-so. Rather than, you know what, they had a good week, I'm going to pray for them. Perspective. It was very interesting to me, that he doesn't. Now, later on, he talks about some prayers, and I think he brings out the fact that he prays for other things. So I'm not suggesting that it's wrong to pray for needs. You got that? But I am saying that maybe our perspective has, should change in the matter of prayer. And we shouldn't just think about and pray for one another when there's a specific need. We ought to pray for one another all the time. When God brings them to mind. And there may be no need at all at that very moment, but they still could use your prayer. So a perspective in prayer. Um, the church at Thessalonica faced intense persecution, and Paul knew what was going on. But he was on his knees for the church because they had a vibrant Christianity, and he wanted to see that continue. So let me ask you, did you pray for me this week? I don't have any tests. But did you pray for me this week? Don't have any real medical needs that I, that I know about. Still pray for me? It's true, isn't it? This is what challenged me from, the, from verse, verse 2 and 3. I pray when I see a need. But I should pray just all the time for God's people. And I should pray when I see good. Notice the praise in prayer. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. Um, a well-known evangelist wrote a book about prayer years ago. It was, it's considered a classic in prayer, and it's a good book. There's some very valuable things in the book that will help you. Uh, John R. Rice wrote it on, on prayer. 
And if you want a challenging book on prayer, there's some very practical things. But there's one thing that he brought out, and he insisted that prayer is asking. And that's true because the word prayer itself means to ask, to petition. But his point was, and the thing that he, he really tried to drive home, and it's the one thing that kind of bothered me in the, in the book when I found a lot of value and a lot of lessons about the matter of prayer, is the one thing he drove home is that prayer is asking. If you're not asking, you're not praying. But Paul didn't say he asked about anything in this. But he did praise. And he said, praise is good, but praise isn't prayer. Praise is prayer. And I disagree respectfully with, with Dr. John R. Rice, whom I greatly respect. He was wrong in that. Praise is prayer. Praise can be made in prayer. And praise can be part of prayer, and praise ought be a part of prayer. And that is one of the points that we can glean from this verse itself, because Paul didn't come and say, I've got a need, Lord. No, he, he just praised the Lord for the fact that these people were, were serving God faithfully. And may we learn to do that. Just praise God for what we observe in lives. The praise, the praise in prayer. And then notice, if you would, one other thing about prayer, the persistency. Notice uh, these words. We give thanks to God every once in a while for you all, making mention of you in our prayer. Okay, that, that is not in your... That's, if you have a King James Version of the Bible, that's not in your Bible, is it? Okay, we give thanks to God... What's the word? Always. Making mention of you in our prayer or prayers. If you take time and look at chapter 3 and verse 10, notice these words, night and day exceedingly. And he prayed specifically for something that they might see, um, that they might see them, that they might be able to meet with them. But don't miss the words always in prayers. It indicates he prayed often. He prayed continually for this church. Um, uh, look, if you would, in verse 3. Remembering without ceasing. He's talking about the subject of prayer. So persistency is taught in the matter of prayer. God's people need to pray often. God's people need to pray continually. And I, I want to ask you to do your in helping believers, as Paul did, by learning to pray for people in this church, because we need it. Even if there's no tests, even if there's no health problems, even if there aren't medical things to be concerned about or financial things, we still need prayer to continue living vibrant Christian life, if that might be the case and where we're at. So I want to ask you to pray for me. This week, when I come to mind, and I know you think about me all the time, okay, if it's once or twice, it'd be a great blessing to know that God's people have just thought and prayed. And I'm going to seek, and I've been seeking, to do the same as God brings you folks to mind. To just pray, to praise, to give thanks. And to not necessarily come and say, so-and-so needs this. No, Lord, so-and-so is, uh, as best I know, living for you. And may they just continue to walk a life that's well-pleasing to, to you.
so there you have some lessons in prayer. Now we're challenged about following godly practices. Or if you want to put it this way, produce for God. And that's what we find in verse 3 about the church. Remembering without ceasing. Here's some things I, I think about you. Three things we see about these people. Notice they had the, a work of faith. They had a labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In the sight of God and in our Father. He says, I remember these things all the time. Here are some things that I see about your life. If we were going around the room, or if we were asked the question, what is vibrant Christian living, what would you say it is? We probably would get a long list of things that you're supposed to do. Read your Bible every day, pray every day. All right, But you look at what he shared here, and he shares three things. Now, is that all there is to the Christian life? No. But there are three things that certainly need to be part of every Christian's life because he was praising this and he was thankful for it and he remembered it all the time. That they had a work of faith, that they had a labor of love uh, and that was going on in their life. And then uh, the third thing was that they had a patience of hope. What did these things mean and what was going on? Well, let me explain the first, a work of faith. If we were to go around the room this morning, that's what I started to say. If we were to go around the room this morning and say, what's your occupation? What would you say? Teacher. Uh, computer guy. Engineer. Janitor. I don't know. You know, we go through, uh, you know, what is your nurse? Uh, I answer phones. Walmart greeter. I, you know, whatever. But what is your occupation? Most would say what they do for a living in order to provide. That word work is occupation. Do you know what Paul said the occupation of those believers were? And by the way, our occupation is? You know what it is? Your Christian life. What's your job? I'm a Christian. No, 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 no. What do you do for a living? I'm a Christian. My faith is my work. It's my occupation. Now, I happen to work at, at Walmart and greet people. But that just provides food. My job is Christian. Does anyone find that challenging? When he looked at her, he said, I, I, you know what I see as your occupation in life? It's evident. Your occupation is your faith. Your job is your faith. And my, that should be praised. When someone's Christianity comes first above all else, how many people do you know that make compromises at work even though they know as a Christian they shouldn't do it? They, they, they'll tell you they're a Christian, but... but they will mistreat fellow employees so they can move up the ladder. You know people like that? They'll tell you a Christian and they'll do things that you know. They'll listen to jokes at work and laugh because they don't want to be out of place. They won't pray at lunch. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you never see them ever bow their head for lunch because, well, you know, if people know this at work, they'll take advantage of me. So they have an occupation, but their occupation isn't their faith. Am I, you get the idea? When Paul looked at the church at Thessalonica, the people as a whole, the, the, the body of Christ, he looked and he thought about individual Christians. He says, you know what? The, the thing that is a wonderful thing to me is that you have an occupation and your occupation is your faith. 
And I don't know about you, but but if people look at my life, I would sure like them to see that my occupation is my faith. You say, well, you're a pastor. <laughs> it's your occupation anyway. Uh, uh, not really. And, and quite honestly, I can be occupied with a lot of things, but, but, but my faith sometimes. What's your occupation? My occupation, by God's grace, is going to be my faith. And I may have to do other jobs or whatever else, but, but my job is going to be my faith, my relationship with God, a work of faith. It would be a wonderful blessing if every Christian in this room saw their faith as their occupation and their job as a means by which they can accomplish in life their faith. Don't you think? That's what he praised about these believers. If Paul were to observe our church, would he write that? These people are occupied by their faith. It's their job. So they had a, the work of faith, the occupation of faith. Second was a labor of love. Why do you do your work? Guilt. Pastor begged me to teach this class. I didn't want to. But someone had to do it. Clean the church. Please don't ask me again this year. Um. Because somehow you, you just, I can't say no to pastor. But um, what is the reason you do what you do? Duty? Uh, obligation? Guilt. Well, if I don't do it, no one's going to do it. just won't get done. You ever been there? What was their labor done? And yeah, this is this is powerful. These people, man, what a testimony. In the midst of persecution, and their labor was done out of love. Just they love God. And I was trying to think how to illustrate it. And this may sound rather strange, but you know what I thought of? I thought of Jacob. Say, Jacob, why in the world would you think of Jacob? Well, Jacob liked this woman. You know who I'm talking about? This young lady he met by the name of Rachel. And um, and I'll tell you something about this. This I mean, she she must have been she must have been good looking, because he just loved her. And so when he came to Laban, because in that day they had to, you know, like pay a dowry or something in order to get a wife, he, he said, I'd like to have Rachel as my wife, so what do you require? And Laban said, oh, nothing much. Just work for me for seven years. <laughs> no pay, but a wife. Wow. Okay, no, I, obviously he provided other things, I would think. But he worked seven years for Rachel. You know what the Bible says about those seven years? It was like nothing. It was like, it was like but a few days. This guy worked seven years for his wife. 
ladies, don't even ask your husbands if they feel that way about you. Okay. But it was just like, it's just a few days. No big deal. <laughs> and then to wake up the next morning. Oh, that's another story. And you didn't even get what you worked for for seven years. Got Leah. Um, but here's here's the the point is he did what he did he did out of love and when he loved it didn't matter. It wasn't. Oh man, I gotta work today because if I don't work today, I don't get I don't get Rachel in seven in seven years. Six and a half years. It was, I get to. So, what is your motive in work? What's your faith? Is that your occupation? And then, what is your motive in work? They had a labor of love. And then the last thing that's mentioned about these people is patience of hope. What does that mean? The idea seems to be this. They knew they were in the Father, and they knew they were in the Son, and therefore they had eternal life. They knew as well from the Scriptures, and they were going to learn a little bit later in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as Paul wrote to them about this fact, that Jesus was coming again. And sometimes in life, when things are really bad, there's only one hope that keeps people going. And it's not, you know, this pain's going to end someday. That wasn't the focus. The focus was Jesus is coming again. And when Jesus comes again, it will all change. See, sometimes the only hope that a Christian has is the fact that, that what I'm going through is temporary. It is. You know, sometimes it's hard to remember that, isn't it? But they had this patience that, uh, that, that controlled their life that led them to continue on and serve God and keep faithfully doing the things they were supposed to be doing and living for God even though the pressure was intense, the fire was hot, and yet they were still living for God. And what kept them going was this, this hope. God's going to come and take me someday. It may be today. So I'm going to live for him today. If it's not today, he'll give me grace it's tomorrow, that'll be fine because he'll give me grace until that time, so I'm going to just serve him tomorrow. And I'm just going to take it one day at a time with this hope before me that someday it'll end because my God's coming again and he loves me. And that's the kind of way we need to live life. I know, I've been there. Sometimes you hurt so bad. You just hurt so bad. You want to just I quit. I'm done with this stuff. And, and as, a, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you just need to, you need to, to buck up under the hope of eternal life with your Savior. Sometimes that's the only thing that will keep you going. What a testimony, these people. Um, if someone were to write about you, like Mr. Nobel had written, what would they write?
that your people of patient hope, that their, your occupation is your faith, that your labor, all your work, your toil for God is just done out of love. Or would people have a different picture? But it doesn't really matter what people think. The question really is, what would God think? It was wonderful, Paul, to testify of this. But if Paul was testifying of this, then let me tell you, God was testifying of it as well. And I, I want my life to be a reflection, a good reflection on my Savior. Don't you? I hope you'll be challenged as I was just in this introduction to the book, just in the encouraging words at the beginning, to be what God would have you to be, to be the light God would have you to be, to have the prayer life God would have you to be, to be a person of praise, um, to be a person who just rejoices in our position in Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. There are so